This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 262, Superman Movie Review. Chris McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now it's the summer, so we always take some vacation time around here, but we're back after having a few weeks off and uh, we're doing a movie review of a film celebrating a milestone anniversary and we're going back 45 years to the original superhero movie, Superman from 1978. But before we get to our movie review... What pop culture have you been able to take in since we last spoke, Derek? Hey, Chris. Uh, Well, I I actually had a chance. Almost everything on my list is very new. So I suspect you have not seen any of this stuff. And that would probably be a good assumption to make. Yeah. And I also have a book review. Again, a book that was came out in the last couple of years. So uh, I'll try and be quick because I know we're probably going to want to talk a lot about Superman, the movie. So we went out to the theater Uh, on our last show. I mentioned we went to the theater and we watched the new Indiana Jones movie that since Mm -hmm. since then we went back to the theater and we had a chance to watch Mission Impossible 7 Dead Reckoning Part 1. It was seven of them so far. eh? Yes. Yes. So uh, following the Harry Potter model of taking seven movies and turning them into eight. Uh, that's basically what they've done here. They've got this Mission Impossible 7, but it's two parts. So instead of saying part seven and part eight, you have part seven, part one, and part seven, part two, which is dumb, but whatever. It is what it is. Uh, it was it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Tom Cruise, I've said before, he knows how to make a movie. He's at his point in his career where he knows what he wants. He knows what works. And he works with people that that have his similar vision. And, uh, and it was everything you expect from a Mission Impossible movie. I don't think it was quite as strong as the last one, but I think the last one was a real culmination of the two or three that came before it. Uh, this one was was still quite good. Um, it, it was a complete movie in and of itself. It, it left a lot open, so you know where the part two of the Dead Reckoning story is going, but it was very complete in and of itself. So it's not like with the Avengers where you go to see the first one uh, and Thanos has a snap and at the end half the people, sorry, spoiler, if you haven't seen it by now, it's been out a long time, and half the people die and people walked out of the theater going, what the hell happens next? Like this... This had a very satisfying conclusion, um, even though it was two and a half hours long. And uh, I am looking forward to seeing the second one when it eventually comes out. I believe it's been uh, the the production of the movie has been postponed due to the strike, but uh, it was really good. And and the, the money reflects that from the theater. Obviously, it made good money. Now, this past weekend, we had two other big ones come out with Barbie and Oppenheimer. I haven't seen either of those yet, but I'll probably have seen one or both of them by the time we do our next show. But for now... Mission Impossible. Now, Chris, have you been out to see anything new in the theater? Have you seen the new Mission Impossible yet? Is that on your radar? <laughs> That's probably the dumbest question you've asked in a long time. <laughs> All right. Just just want to make sure that uh, people get what they're what, paying for here. What and, do you uh, think? Yeah, no. Okay. All right. So 
Uh, that was my new one. But and then, then I watched a whole bunch of stuff on streaming. I only sort of hit hit. I wanted I could say the highlights, but some of these weren't really highlight. Mm-hmm. So uh, I watched a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Um, came up as a recommended for me. It's called Three Thousand Years of Longing, and it stars um, Idris Alba and um, oh my god, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, it'll come to me. And um, Wow, it's really bothering me that I can't think of her name. Holy crap. But it's basically a, like a stage play. It's two characters. Idris Alba sounds like a girl's name, is it? In, uh, no, no. It's, um, oh my God, this is really, I normally I write these things down, but I'm like, oh no, I don't have to write this down. It's, okay, anyway. Uh, the premise is the woman finds a genie in a bottle in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it, the genie's retelling, the genie's trying to convince her, use your three wishes so that I can be freed. Are, are and, you sure you didn't go see Aladdin? No, no, okay. it's uh, it's a, it's a drama, and oh. and he's telling the story like she's asking probing questions about how he how he was imprisoned in the bottle and and why she should use her wishes, and he's telling his his story, and it's done very very well. It's very clever, very creative. The special effects are quite good, but again, it it watches very much like a stage play, despite the fact that when he has his flashbacks, it's full of like magic and special effects. But no, it was quite good. I really enjoyed it. Um, so if that one pops up on your, uh, you know, recommended, hey, you may like, give it a chance. It was quite good. Uh, but then another one that popped up that said you may like that we did watch was Cocaine Bear. Jeez, <laughs> oh, It's everything you expect. Drug dealers, uh, they're, they're, they're illegally transporting drugs at the beginning of the movie while the credits are rolling. And the plane has technical trouble. So they start throwing all the drugs out the window with parachutes. And they're like, well, we know where this is. We'll come back and get it. And of course... This bear accidentally starts getting into the cocaine and develops a habit for coke. So when the guys show up in the woods to try and collect the cocaine, guess what happens? Cocaine bear starts ravaging them. And uh, it's it's as exciting as I make it sound. It is dumb, but it is funny, but it is it is interesting and and you can't look away it was it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it way more than i expected to i had super low expectations but considering i didn't have to pay to watch it on the streamer it was a good way to spend 90 minutes so yeah no that was that was i was gonna say money well spent but i didn't have to actually spend any money Uh, one thing can i just jump in yes was was idris alba's uh co-star tilda swinton tilda swinton thank you yeah. Yes, I look it up on my phone. Like, is oh, I have any idea? Yeah, no. Thank is. you very much. Um, so uh, then, uh, on Amazon Prime, the streaming series Jack Ryan, which is based on the Tom Clancy novels. Uh, Jack Ryan was in Hunt for Red October and Clear and Present Danger. That character, he's had his own uh, streaming show. This is season four. I believe this is the last season they're going to do. Uh, it dropped on Amazon a couple of weeks ago, and then they were doing one or two episodes a week. So the last episode finally dropped. I had a chance to finish that. It was very strong. If you've been watching this all the way through, you're going to get more of what you've gotten before. You should be very satisfied with this one. Uh, it, it's exactly what you expect. Um, if you've seen any of the previous seasons and you didn't dig them, this is not for you. So uh, it, it, it's it was quite strong. I really enjoyed it. Then I had a chance to read. So let me ask you, Chris. So I have the Audible book on audio through Amazon. Can you, can you say you've read a book if you are actually listening to the book? Like my instinct is to say I read a good book, but I didn't actually read it. It was, it was read to me through an audio. So I guess what, what's the nomenclature? You're asking the wrong guy because I just read books. I mean, it just, it seems weird to say I listened to a book. I'm going to just say I read a book. I didn't actually read it on the page, but Mm -hmm. it just sounds weird to say otherwise. So I read a good book this week that and 
Um, with Audible, once a month, they bill your credit card and you get a credit to download a movie. Well, if you don't use those credits after a certain time, they expire. So I got a bunch of credits that are about to expire because I haven't downloaded anything in a while. And so I just went on and downloaded a bunch of books based on some reviews and recommendations. So I, I downloaded this book and it's called Hench, like like the term henchman, except since the main character is a woman, it's just called Hench. And it's the author's name is uh, Natalie Zena Walshots. Uh, the book came out in 2020, so it's only a couple years old. It turns out, and I had no idea, that she's from Toronto, which is where, where I'm from. And maybe that's why it had shown up on one of my lists as a recommended read. But the the premise is that she's a hench person or a hench for um, supervillains. And this is a story where it's a world where superheroes and supervillains exist. And how do you think all the superheroes and the supervillains make their day-to-day life work like you think the justice league mops their own floors no they go to a temp agency and they hire henches to come and do that kind of thing so she works for the the other side of it where she goes to this temp agency to try and work for some of these villains and early in the book uh she's basically like an innocent bystander doing a joe job at an evil villain's lair and heroes come in and smash the place up and she gets injured and there's like no recompense no apologies no no anything and she gets really angry and basically puts her use of data processing and data analysis to the test and tries to screw over the hero's lives behind the scenes um, because she doesn't actually have superpowers, but she has all this intimate knowledge of how superhero culture works. And it's really clever. It's really well told. I don't want to give away too much because the book really goes in a couple of directions you may not initially expect, but it was very good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I really liked that the main character was a woman and most of the other characters in the in the book uh, are, are women because you know, again, I tend to gravitate to books written by dudes, so they always make a guy the, the main character. So it was a nice change of pace for me, and uh, I didn't feel that that hurt the story at all. In fact, I felt that it really helped the story because as as a woman, she's really um, able to fly under the radar and be underestimated by so many of the male protagonists in the book. Uh, it, it was it was really good. It's called Hench. It's from 2020. So and, and a lot of a account, lot of that stuff with superheroes is sort of male dominated anyway. Yes, yes, and that's a yeah. that's a big part of the story as well. Um, there are female superheroes and female supervillains that are in it, but her main nemesis becomes like basically the the Superman stand-in character because he's a super douche in this one, and um, she just does everything she can to make his life miserable and pushes buttons, and it's hilarious. It's done in a very very clever way, so I really enjoyed it. The book is called Hench. If you've got an Audible account, and you got a free credit sitting around, you don't know what to spend it on, try Hench. It was really good, nice. and then. I've had a chance to watch two documentaries. For 40 days and 40 nights, we watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Oh, do tell. First documentary is mm-hmm. called Wham! And it's about the band Wham! from the Ooh. 1980s. Oh, this, and, this is interesting. And it's literally... The the three or four years that the band was in existence, that's really all it focuses on is just the band. Because there was a, a documentary that came out a couple of years ago about George Michael after he died. And it it was all about him, but it didn't really focus that much on his involvement with Wham. It was sort of like at the beginning, hey, and this is how he got started. He was Wham. And then he went on his own, had this huge solo career. And the, the George Michael documentary focuses more on his solo career and him coming out and, and that part of his life. And that documentary on its own was great. So I was really worried this new documentary was going to tread on a lot of that same material. And it did not. It was very much um, how the two guys that formed Wham met as young kids, how they had a lifelong friendship together, how they started the band together, how they wrote the music together, how they made a lot of decisions 
on how to present the band and and how to create their image and they brought different strengths to the relationship and it was really really good if you enjoy 80s music 80 pop culture if if you're a fan of wham or you just want to see a good documentary about a a, a, a you know a, these two guys who were such great friends i would strongly recommend it i i want to say it was on netflix um, honestly, it was on one of the streamers. I'm pretty sure it was Netflix. Um, so that was the one I watched a couple of weeks back. And then the one that I just watched today, and it's super relevant given what we're doing, is it's called Super Powered, the DC Story. And it's all about the history of DC Comics. Cool. It's it's three one-hour episodes available on HBO. And and it's, uh, it's a re- – well, not a retelling. It's a telling of the history of how did DC Comics begin and how did all their characters get invented and how have their characters – gone from being relevant to irrelevant to relevant to irrelevant how have they changed based on the introduction of marvel comics how has the marvel cinematic universe shaped the dc comic universe in the last 15 20 years how has the need for diversity and representation affected their business and their books and their their creative teams um no it was really good it was uh it's three one-hour episodes if you're at all into comic books, it's it's a great watch. Um, so yeah, a lot of really strong reviews for me on the stuff I, I had this week. Mm. What about you, Chris? What have you been up to in the last few weeks? Well, Derek, for the first time in a long time, my wife and I actually had a week without any kids. So one went to camp and the other went with his grandparents. Derek, any guesses as to what my wife and I did for our first week together in ages without any kids? Well, uh, I'm probably the, the correct answer is probably sleep, but I'm guessing knowing you, you had her sit down and watch episode three of a uh, season three of the love boat and season two of different strokes and season one of the facts of life. Cause that just sounds like what Chris would want his wife to do the first night together. Our first night alone without kids. I made her watch police Academy. The first one. Yeah. Okay. The sec <laughs> the second night I made her watch. National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> All right. So. And the third night, Chris slept on the couch. <laughs> exactly. No, but then, funny enough, we actually watched a few documentaries as well. So, based on your recommendation here on the podcast, the first one we watched was the three-part documentary series uh, on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yes. Because you had told me to watch that. It was yeah. really good. I thought it was great. And yeah, then we, we also watched that same documentary on Wham! Oh, Excellent. Yeah, What'd you we, think? Well, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I was never really into Wham all that much. Like back when they first came out, I was like a metalhead in high school. And mm-hmm. I remember one of my friends used to say, Wham stands for We Hate All Metal. Okay. Uh, not that I ever believed it, but I mean, it, like I, I always thought Wham was actually pretty good because they basically created that whole genre of 80s pop. They were really original. But going into this documentary was interesting because I went into it really only remembering them for two songs wake me up before you go go and careless whisper but they had quite a few hits like everything she wants and i'm your man and freedom and and of course last christmas so it was actually really good i enjoyed it believe it or not yeah no i I, like you the wham was uh they were big when i was growing up but I was I would have only been eight years old in 1983 1982 when the stuff came out so it was a little 
ahead of ahead of my music taste. So like like I was sort of getting into my own music more in the later '80s. So by then, Wham had dissolved, and George Michael was a solo artist. Like I can remember the George Michael Faith album. Like that was one of the first albums I remember purchasing. So Wham was just a smidge before my time, but I, I do really enjoy them. And uh, watching the documentary, it, it, there was stuff they talked about, um, sort of the effect they had on pop culture that was uh new to me like things that i just maybe had assumed but to other things where i had i clearly no idea i mean that's what i love about a documentary it's, mm-hmm. it's usually if it's done well it's educational you'll learn things about a topic you have some interest in that you never knew before so no, so yeah good. so i had a week without kids and i just made my wife watch all this pop culture stuff but then the kids came back and i became a dad again so i did this <laughs> Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, I figured since we're going to go back and watch Superman for this week, that I do a Superman dad joke for you. Okay. Right? So, Derek, why did all the photographs come out dark at Superman's birthday party? You know what? I I, I think I might have. I think I might have just thought of the punchline. It's pretty funny. I don't know, Chris. Why not? They forgot to invite the Flash. That's exactly what I thought it was going to be. And I was like, I don't want to steal your thunder because this one's pretty good. Hey! Let me tell you about this Dukes of Hazard remake I've been imagining. What are you doing? Some of this stuff was just too wacky for me. I am the crotchety old guy who just hates everything new. They're always having parties. And then I also watch Three's Company. This is my lot in life. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. It's him and so-and-so in a romantic relationship, and they open an ice cream store. It's a dinklage. He was always making moonshine. He went on to do gay porn. Oh, my, my, my. What the hell? Okay, so we've spent some time this season on the podcast going back and reviewing movies that are celebrating major milestone anniversaries. And Superman is celebrating 45 years since its initial theatrical release back on December the 15th of 1978. So, Derek, you're a big fan of the MCU and superhero movies in general, really. So you thought it might be worthwhile going back and watching sort of the OG superhero movie superman so why do you want to watch this movie and talk about it here on the show well uh, mainly for the reasons you just mentioned the the world we live in now is dominated the, the theatrical releases are dominated by superheroes superhero movies mostly marvel they've done a much better job than dc but dc has made their stamp as well they they had the the batman movies have always done well um, starting in 89 with, with Batman, which we've reviewed on this podcast, uh, into the, the Christopher Nolan movies, and you and the NC did The Dark Knight. Like, they, DC's had its successes, but uh, Marvel sort of reinvented how everything how everything can work, and they've just dominated that space for the last decade or longer. And I think it's important to remember that the success that Marvel's having didn't happen overnight. And even Iron Man, that was the first one, wouldn't have had an opportunity to do what it did had had a lot of these other ones not come before it and set the groundwork. And Superman, the movie, this one that we're talking about, 1978 Superman, it was the first of its kind. And from like I was doing the homework uh, after, uh, you know, after I watched the movie, I went and I read some more stuff. And then watching this DC documentary, they also talked about this. So the timing was perfect, um, how they took a big risk on this movie. And there's a very strong likelihood that this movie could have flopped. People oh, yeah. did not have the confidence that this would be a hit. And and looking at it now, you know, we may we'll talk about like some things I think held up very well, some things less so based on what we're seeing today. 
But everything, you know, they always say, uh, you know, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. Well, this is the giant that everyone else is standing upon the shoulders of. And, um, you know, there's a real chance that this movie just could have bombed. People could would have found it funny and hokey and that would have been it. Everyone associated this with this movie would have been laughed at and DC Comics and uh, as a business would have gone under. But lo and behold, it went the other way. Like they had the tagline, you'll believe a man can fly. And people did. And I can remember seeing this movie in the theater as a little kid and loving it. And, um, you know, I, I, I felt that um, it would be worth coming back and taking another look at it all these years later. Because honestly, I hadn't sat down to watch it start to finish and probably 10 years. I've seen Superman two, a couple of times in the last decade, but this one I had not seen in quite some time. So it, it was a very, uh, a very interesting revisit. And I really uh, enjoyed going back to it. So it was made on a budget of $55 million, which at the time was the most expensive movie ever made when it came out. And it made $134 million domestically, $300 million worldwide. Now, the majority of that was in 1979, though, the next year, because the movie yeah. came out at, in December right of 78, Christmas, right? Yeah. So it only took in $34 million during the calendar year of 78. But even that was good enough for ninth place at the box office for 78. Mm-hmm. And it took in an additional $93 million the next year. So it, it became the number one movie at the box office the next year. But if you take a look at, like, so, so you got Superman... There's the Amityville Horror came out. So let's just take a look at 1979. Okay. 79. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just the next year. Cause that's when it made most of its money. So Superman was the number one grossing film in 79. Then followed by the Amityville Horror, Rocky two, Star Trek, the motion picture and alien rounding out the top 10 was apocalypse. Now 10, the jerk Moonraker, and meatballs. Oh, it's a pretty good list, except yeah. for meatballs. I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know. I would say meatballs was one of the better ones on there, of course. But Kramer versus Kramer won Best Picture in '79. It made over a hundred million dollars, but it came out at the end of '79 too, yeah. or like you know a year later than this one. So again, it, its box office was the next year. But anyway, Superman was a hit with audiences. You know, and I saw it in the theater just like you did back. When, I was eight years old when it came out. I remember I really enjoyed it then. And having watched it again this week, I still like it. Yeah. I no, thought it was really, really good. It really held up. It, yeah. It, it I mean, better than better than I expected it to. Um, but I mean, we talk about this sometimes where and usually in a problematic way, we talk mm-hmm. about how, well, you got to watch it through the lens of the year in which it came out. You can't judge it by today's standards. And I found this was one of those times where I actually didn't have a problem doing that at all. Yes, there were some things, and we'll talk about it, things like the smoking and some of the other things that are very much of its time. But I think it works. It it fits in the time it was made and I, in the best possible way, uh, unlike some other movies where we look back at it and we're like, why did this, you know, why was this acceptable back then when it's clearly not acceptable now? And I, I don't really feel there was a lot of that negativity associated with this. This movie did a really good job and, and did so many things so well. I'm glad to hear you say that, but how do you think it holds up uh, in comparison with sort of this onslaught of superhero movies that are out now? Well, I, I think it's I think it's trying to do something different. I don't think you can necessarily compare it apples to apples. You can't say, let's compare this 1978 Superman with the recent Superman Man of Steel with Henry Cavill as Superman, even though they're both stories about Superman and they both cover his origin and and how he comes out to the world and all the rest of that. They're presented in different ways. Like this one really focuses on 
who he is as a person and the values. This is one of the things that I think people often forget about Superman is um, Superman is is who he is largely because of the values that were instilled upon him by his parents who were good, wholehearted Americans, you know, uh, salt of the earth people who who had, you know, the, the these big hearts that took in this this baby they found and just taught him how to, you know, be the best possible version of himself. And there's a lot of more recent reimaginings of Superman where it's like, well, what if somebody else had found the Superman baby? What if the government had been the first people on the scenes? What if he had crash landed in Russia? What if he had uh, crash landed, uh, you know, years earlier and slaves had found him? And he, you know, like there's been all this reimagining about about that part of the story. But in, in this one, in 1978, sticking to the original source material, you know, this is all about hope. And it's about, you know, he talks about I'm here for truth, justice in the American way. And I think in the 70s, like this was the right message at the right time where it's it's this person who, despite not being American, is the epitome of the American dream. He's an he's an immigrant. He's from someplace else. You know, he's trying to be the best version of of what he believes the people in his homeland should be like. And that's not really what movies today are trying to do. So when you try and make that comparison, it's difficult. It's it's mm. today's is all about explosions and special yeah. effects and look action, at how great action, these action, action sequences yeah. are. And this this movie does has very little action in it. It is a drama. Um, whereas any of the other more recent superhero movies, they I would classify every single one of them as an action film with some dramatic parts or some some humor in it. This to me is a capital D drama. It just happens to have a guy with superpowers who can fly. I think it's interesting that you mentioned like this movie could have bombed oh, because if you think back to 1978, the idea of Superman was basically, you know, just came from some comic books and a kid's TV show in black and white starring George Reeves. Like that was it. The only real superhero in pop culture at the time was that old campy Batman TV show with Adam West and Burt Ward. It wasn't like today where, you know, a superhero movie is a no brainer. So this movie could have bombed. Yeah. You're right. Well, when did when did The Incredible Hulk come onto TV? It was I, around this time. It was it around was this time. It was around 77, 78. Yeah. So again, it's and again, it was a it was a hit TV show, but it wasn't like you were asking people to go to the movie theater and pay money to see this. Like it was definitely a risk and and at the time, to exactly your point, like in people's mind, it's Batman, it's na 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 Batman. Like he was he was a parody of himself. He was a joke. It was like people were very concerned that this movie was going to do to Superman what the TV show did to Batman. And even the people associated with the film were concerned at first about how are you going to treat this material? And I read some stuff where they talked about rewrites of the scripts and the troubles they had with the directors and how everyone sort of wanted it to go in a different direction. And ultimately, you know, where it landed was probably the best possible place. We're going to take it seriously. We're going to we're not going to make fun of it. We're not going to wink, wink to the audience about how silly it is for a guy to walk around in blue tights. They just treated it like like a real story, a real drama. And they got real actors who, you know, can do like Christopher Reeves is outstanding in this movie. Amazing. Like He is so yeah. good. And like even I watched this with my wife. She kept turning to me and go, I forgot how good looking this man is. Oh, my God, is he mm -hmm. he's so striking. And the, the, the jaw in this like and today. Believe me, they've done a pretty good job with the Superman casting over the years. Like Henry Cavill, who has been the most recent Superman, is a beautiful man. But like 
part of the part of the thing in today's superhero movies is the actors get like super jacked and pumped up in the 70s like Christopher Reeves is in good shape here but a guy going into a Marvel movie with a body like this he'd get laughed off the screen like it's it's just it's so different it's so hard to compare today's superhero movie to this one I'm glad that you mentioned that you'd seen the sequel recently because they actually filmed Superman this movie and Superman 2 at the same time simultaneously yeah. I and, didn't know that until yeah. just like I don't want to say recently but maybe in the last 10 years like I only somewhat recently learned that Yeah that's why the opening scene of the movie with the three criminals on trial with Zod mm-hmm. and Ursula Non like they already had that plot line in place for the sequel and I think they just figured they could save time and money you know, by shooting both films together. But mm-hmm. when it came out with Superman costing $55 million, the costs also started going up for, you know, the sequel they were working on at the same time. So at one point they actually shut the production down on the sequel and they said, okay, let's just hold off and let's just see if this Superman yeah. is actually a hit before we proceed with the rest of this stuff. And, um, and, and then one thing I wanted to mention to you, you have got me conditioned to stick around now until the end of the credits. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I did that when I watched this. And at the very end, it says coming next year, Superman 2, which was interesting because that did not happen because this movie came out in 78 and the sequel didn't come out until 81. Right. But they were able to te- it was just like James Bond movies mm-hmm. that James Bond will return yeah. in Octopussy. Right. Like, right. You know, it's that same idea where it's a bold statement. To to in, to tease the audience in that way. I mean, nowadays it's a whole other thing, but in the seventies, that was a huge uh, gamble to put that in there and not mm. look silly, right? You want to call your movie "The Adventures of Remo Williams: The Adventures Begin," and then he has no more adventures. <laughs> exactly. You look a little silly, buddy. <laughs> I so I feel like I have a lot to talk about in this movie. I want to start with the score. So, oh. if if all that a composer ever did in his or her career was to score this movie they'd have a lasting legacy. Like, what a career accomplishment. This isn't even one of John Williams' best works. Oh, so, I, I disagree. We like, meant, this, is, this, is, this is my number three behind Star Wars and yeah, Raiders. This is number that's three. Right, but it's not, no it's not his number one, you know? Well, nothing's ever going to beat Star Wars. Well, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think number one for me is Star Wars. Number two is Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah, for me. no question. And, and, and three is Superman. And then I would go Jurassic Park and Jaws. And I only put Jaws down at five just because of its simplicity. You know, it's so simple. You know, it's it's amazing. But the others layer more complexity into the composition. So I got to rank them higher. But this is such a good score. So, and it's, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up. So when we were watching this the other day, um, I was saying uh, to my wife when when certain scenes, especially the scene with the helicopter, which is, you know, that's that's the pinnacle scene of the movie. Um, That scene without the music is nowhere near as good. Like oh, when yeah. the music plays, I just, I, I couldn't help but smile. All the hairs on my arm rose up. Like, and I even said that I turned to my wife and I said, if it wasn't for the music, like this, the music is like just bringing this scene from an A to an A plus mm-hmm. plus. And then during the, um, during the DC comics documentary that I watched just today, they have some scenes from the movie and it's that scene. They show a little bit of it. And again, soon as I heard the movie, mm, hairs on my arm stood up and I started getting those tingles and I'm smiling. I'm like, it's amazing how important the music is to this movie. I think if if a, if it had not been as if the music had not been as successful as it was, I don't know if the movie would have been as successful as so, it was. So you make a good point. It's important in the helicopter scene. You know where the score is important for me? The opening title sequence. 
Yes. I absolutely love the opening title sequence of this movie. So, and the score is probably the biggest reason why I like it. Yes. I love how the titles are these like silver 3D letters swooshing through space and they kind of like fly out at you with a score going on. I remember when I saw this, you know, in the theater as an eight-year-old kid, this is what stood out to me. This opening sequence. I I still think it's good when I watched it. And it seems to me, you could tell me that this opening title sequence has become kind of a thing in MCU superhero movies, hasn't it? Um, not really. No, I think more and more now they, they don't want, it's sort of that star Wars thing. We don't want to put all this jazz up front and have like the names and all that stuff at the beginning. Like most of that now comes at the end of the movie, even the title. Like I'm thinking like Iron Man, for example, the Iron Man title of the movie doesn't appear on the screen until the very end with the credits rolling. Um, interesting, but, um, but I did read that the opening credits for this Superman movie cost, it had, it cost so much because it was a new technology. It was more, it was a higher budget than most other movies had for their entire movie. Mm -hmm. They had that budget for the opening credit sequence and they, apparently the the money, the money people were freaking out. It was costing so much. (laughs) I'm glad they did it. So so yeah, no, it looks good. Okay. So let's talk about the cast. So you mentioned Christopher Reeve. I think a lot of people didn't take him all that seriously as an actor because I mean, he wore tights. He played Superman. I think he's a very talented actor or he was a very talented actor. He got, it's easy to look at it and say like he got typecast as Superman and you know, and he didn't do a lot of other stuff, but a lot of that was interesting because that didn't really have to do entirely with him being type typecast. Mm-hmm. He was a very picky actor. So he was offered the lead role in American Gigolo in 1980 and he turned it down body heat he turned down he turned down uh an offer to star in romancing the stone he was offered the male lead in pretty woman and when he went in to read for the part uh they had him read with a casting director instead of julia roberts who was already cast and then they offered him the part and he's like the fact that i had to go in there and read with the casting director is unprofessional so he turned it down wow and so it's not just that he was typecast as Superman. I think a lot of reason why he didn't do a lot of other movies was sort of his own doing. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, I, I mentioned uh, in the last few months, I watched the movie Death Trap, mm, which he yes. was in. And yeah. he was fantastic in that. And exactly to your point, though, I read some of the behind the scenes and they were saying part of the reason he took that was because it was such a departure from his role as Superman. And whether or not that uh, um, audiences were maybe a little bit upset but they're like oh well this is what we expect the kind of role that the, for superman to take and it's like yeah you're right he may have just got it in his own way a little bit but in this movie in superman he doesn't even get top billing in fact yeah it was his name during the opening credits doesn't even appear before the title it goes marlon brando gene hackman and then the title superman and then christopher reeve yeah. So I thought it was yeah. interesting. I mean, I know he's an unknown actor at the time, but geez, you know, so. Well, and they, they I read a whole bunch of stuff about the, the dollars and cents of it where Brando got paid million, like literally millions of dollars for what ended up being between 10 and 15 minutes of screen time and something like 10 days of work. Whereas Christopher Reeves got paid $250,000 as a package for both part one and part two. Now, I'm sure they sort of took care of him for part three and part four, and he ended up making some money on the back end of it. But, you know, again, it's. Like we said, the movie could have been a flop. So it, it makes sense that if they could pay him a smaller amount and if he was, a you know, I don't want to say a struggling actor, but an actor who who hadn't really established himself as a big 
Hollywood movie star who could who could mainstream a movie, then you get what you get. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to read that. And then the other the other travesty was that Margot Kidder has got I think they said she's billed eighth, mm-hmm. and it's like wow, like that wouldn't happen today. Like there's no way. Like and you know that a big part of that is because she's a woman. Like that's oh, for sure. I, I'm sure there was other yeah. I'm sure there was other reasons, but that was I'm sure a big part of it. And she so was unknown at the time too. So, but still, yeah. uh, you know, you, you talk about Superman, you think, mm-hmm. well, it's going to be Superman and Lois Lane yep, and maybe Lex Luthor. But it's like, holy cow, like eight billing. Come on, man. I know. So Christopher Reeve in 1995 uh, was paralyzed for the neck down in an accident when he was thrown from a horse and he died 10 years after that. And, it, you know, it made me think, like, how sad is life sometime yeah. when, when Superman, when friggin Superman can't walk? You know, like life is just so incredibly strange sometimes. And it's yeah. too bad because it would have been interesting to see him mature as an actor, I think, as he aged, you know, but. Uh, yeah. But anyway, speaking of aging actors, Marlon Brando. So I thought it was interesting. Christopher Reeve one time was on David Letterman back in like 82. And they were talking about his career and, and David asked him about working with Marlon Brando. And Christopher Reeve basically said that Marlon Brando was a sellout. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah, he's like, he he can say, yeah, he just, he didn't care when he came onto this this set. And, and you know, and like he admitted like Brando was a magnificent actor and like he was, he, but he just did the role on Superman for the money, phoned in his performance. I know Brandon, Brando did all of his lines uh, using cue cards. Although yeah, I, it wasn't the first too. time he, he did that. He read um, off cue cards on Last Tango in Paris as well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, he may have sold out, but watching this movie, I thought his performance as Jor-El was actually pretty good. Yeah, like considering I was reading some of the stuff about casting and a lot of the reasons that other performers turned down either the role of Superman or or the role of Lex Luthor was they were like, I don't want to wear tights. I don't want to do this movie that's a, a kiddie movie, a comic book movie where no one's taking it seriously. Like. You, I mean, when I watched it, I believe Brando was taking it very seriously. Like mm-hmm. he, he wasn't, you know, again, it wasn't this 66 Batman where he was all like, you know, uh, Powell and Zammy and, and, and doing ridiculous things and wink, wink at the, at the, at the camera. Like, it's clear that he was, although, you know, Christopher Reeves is saying he was phoning it in and he was still doing what he was hired to do. He took, it seemed like he was taking the material seriously, even if he hadn't memorized the lines and did what they needed him to do. You know, the first 20, 25 minutes of the movie are are take place on Krypton. Superman's not even on it. It's like you're establishing that backstory of this is who his father was like this. You know, Brando's the top name in the movie. They're going to put him in the movie right at the beginning. And I think he did exactly what they wanted him to do, what they needed him to do, what they hired him to do. Give the movie immediate credibility by being a serious actor in these opening sequences and take this seriously. Yeah, I think, I think for millennials and people today, younger people, they don't understand Marlon Brando was one of the greatest actors of his generation. Yeah. Like he was phenomenal. I remember John Belushi used to idolize Brando and Belushi used to play him in a couple of sketches on the old uh, Saturday Night Live. He played Brando mm-hmm. as um, as Don Corleone in a sketch called Godfather Therapy with Elliot Gould. Oh, I think and, I remember that. Oh, yeah. Belushi had him nailed, like just perfect impression. And Belushi also played uh, Brando as Jor-El in a sketch called Uberman. I remember okay. his floating head appeared just like in Superman to give oh, like nice. Dan Aykroyd's Uberman this, you know, this advice. But, uh, yeah, Marlon Brando, man, he was something else. Um, you mentioned Margot Kidder. Uh, initially, for me, it seemed that she was a bit of an odd casting choice. 
I don't I don't know if it's just that she seemed like she was maybe a little bit too old for the part or something. She was 30 when they shot the film. Uh, maybe she just seemed older than that. I don't think mean, Christopher Reeve was 24. I don't know. But my first impression was, you know, she's too old to pull this off. But I think she did. I thought I, she as I watched the film, I was like, she was pretty good. What do you think of her? Yeah, I think her performance was good, but honestly, there's just something about her I've never cared for, um, and that's just me personally. I, it's nothing about her ability as a performer. I think that she did a great job, but for me, she just never really did it as a Lois Lane. Um, I, I did see that um, on one of the DVDs or one of the Blu-rays, there was some behind-the-scenes stuff where they showed uh, they had cast Stalker Channing or they were going to cast her and they had her do some scenes with Christopher Reeves mm. as Superman. And so there's some some um, behind the scenes footage that's available where you actually see uh, Stalker Channing and Christopher Reeves performing scenes together. Oh, and interesting. I, I don't know how that would have worked. I think I yeah. think that might have been a little bit odd as well. But it, it seemed to me that the, the that after seeing that and sort of rewatching it with with Margot Kidder, I'm like, she did a fine job, but. In my mind, like the role almost seemed interchangeable. Any any female actor could have done it. Like she didn't wow me. You know, like this. I don't see anybody else playing Superman. Christopher Reeves totally wowed me. He, he you believed he was Superman. With her as Lois Lane, I was like, she was fine. But I I could see twenty other people coming in and doing that, and I'd be like, they were fine as well. Couple that, things. That's just my personal. Yeah, experience. a couple things there. Stalker Channing. I'm glad didn't get this part because it freed her up in 1978 to do the fish that saved Pittsburgh. So, you know, one of my favorites, but uh, Margot Kidder, like at the time, like she was, she's Canadian too. Like, and she was an unknown Canadian actress when she got this, she did some TV back in the seventies. She did this really good Canadian film called black Christmas back in 74 with Keir Julia and John Saxon, John Saxon from um, enter the dragon that we did earlier okay. this year on the podcast. And yeah, I've seen that movie. It sounds familiar. Yeah, it was really good. And then she did the Amityville Horror the year after this came out, and she was obviously in Superman too. But other than that, she didn't really have much of a career in Hollywood, you know? Um, I wanted to mention Jackie Cooper, Perry White, the editor of the Daily Planet. And the reason I want to mention him, I don't know if you know this, Derek, but he was one of the original Little Rascals. I didn't know that until I looked it up later. Yeah. But again, I, I, watching like I, it today, that meant right nothing away. to me. But in the moment, I'm sure some people would have recognized. It's like when they do those, um, like when they've redone Superman and they've had people from this movie in those ones as a little wink, wink. Like that to me is sort of almost like what this is like. Oh, do you recognize this guy? Wink, wink. He was big when the Superman comics came out. But like back in like 78, when this movie came out, the little rascals were on TV every day after school. Oh, yeah. Even though they were from the 30s, you know, so everybody knew Jackie Cooper. Right. And the thing with about him was he looks the exact same as an adult as he did when he was a kid. His face is identical. And I really liked him in our gang. So Gene Hackman, I want to talk about, you know, you talk about Marlon Brando being one of the greatest actors of his generation. So is Gene Hackman. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty good. Something else. eh? And the thing for me is like he's such an original actor, such an original leading man, like so talented like the french connection hoosiers he won a best supporting actor oscar for the unforgiven and best actor for mississippi burning and he was nominated three other times he was nominated for bonnie and clyde french connection and i never sang for my father like so i thought he was great as lex Luthor, at least in my opinion what do you think yeah no i uh 
my only beef is that in the comic books, Lex Luthor is bald. And I, I again, I read the behind the scenes stuff that Hackman was like, I'll do this movie, but I'm not shaving my head and I'm not wearing a bald cap. And they had him compromise where he said he would do the bald cap for one scene, which he does at the end of the movie. And apparently yeah. if you sort of watch it on slow motion, you can totally see it's a bald cap because yeah. he was like just difficult about putting it on. Uh, that to me was one of the things that as a young kid, it, I, I was confused. Like, why is Lex Luthor got hair? And it seems like a small detail, but it really bothered me for a long time. And when I watched it again this week, it, again, it sort of just tugged at the back of my, you know, the back of my mind. It's like, you know, I get that you're a big movie star, but like, come on, man, seriously, suck it up. Like mm-hmm. they paid you a million bucks, like shave your head. Yeah, there was a scene, too, in his underground lair there where um, Ned Beatty was there was all these like wigs around yeah kind of hinted at the fact that he was bald and and speaking of Ned Beatty he was really required in this part I think because he gave some levity to things yeah Lex Luthor is just this evil evil guy who wants to kill a lot of innocent people and Otis helps to add a bit of comic relief to that you know with his bumbling and stuff and that's I think is important there but um but speaking of Ned Beatty Perhaps the greatest character actor who's ever lived, I think. He was in Back to School. That's a favorite of yours. Yeah, Eric. he was the Dean. Dean Martin. Yeah, and he was in like Hopscotch and The Incredible Shrinking Woman. And He's it's in Deliverance. Race. Yes, of Deliverance. I mean. And he know. was in the Homicide TV show and he was amazing in that. And speaking that, was, of, that was much later in his career. Right. Speaking of Deliverance, and unfortunately, all of, for all the work he's ever done, he'll probably always be best remembered just for getting by a hillbilly in deliverance like that's so bad but uh i want to mention mark mcclure too and i only want to mention him because he was also in back to the future remember he was marty mcfly's brother dave yes who yes, disappeared yes, yes. from the photograph he's like it's a small part there and i also want to bring up some of the elders at the beginning of the film oh so, yeah 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 so, so trevor, guilty guilty yes so trevor that group howard of was one of them men yes <laughs> so trevor howard was one he was in the third man in gandhi and another one of the elders was actually played by john hollis who was lobot in the empire strikes back remember oh Lon- yeah, yeah, yeah 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 the, the bald guy with like the, the computer wrapped around the back of his yeah head. but um anyway um something you mentioned before i just want to circle back to you were talking about superman being american you know, yes. and I and I think it's important because I think he's the most American of all superheroes, right? Uh, well, I mean, yes, yes, definitely. Like, I mean, he was he was an, a quote unquote American character. Like, he seems more American than Batman or Spider Man or even Captain America. You know, and he was invented by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Yeah, Joe Schuster was a Canadian. He was mm-hmm. from Toronto. His cousin is Frank Schuster. From the comedy duo Wayne and Schuster. Remember those guys? Okay. I do. Yeah, well, and Frank's daughter, Rosie, went on to New York and worked on Saturday Night Live, too. Well, just some interesting trivia, I guess. But, um, okay, so the movie is pretty long. It's like two yeah. and a half hours long. Um, but it's because it's almost like two movies in one. Like, there's the origin story and then the Superman story. I'm yeah. glad they're both in there. I think it makes sense. I think it makes the movie stronger, don't you think? Yeah, I think uh, like I was saying, I think if this would if this had been billed and composed as an action movie, this would be way too long, especially for 1978. But because it's a drama, like I was saying, it's a drama. 
people were willing to sit through a longer movie. Like you said, Apocalypse Now was one of the other movies in the top 10. That movie's got to be, what, three hours? And then the mm-hmm. director's cut is like four hours? Like, in the 70s, people were more willing to sit through longer things. They, they, you know, It's not like today where people have this incredibly short attention spans. Like, people understood. If I'm going to a movie, the, the, the people putting this movie together are telling me a story. And if that story takes two hours or two and a half hours or two hours and 45 minutes, they're going to give it that time. And uh, I don't, I don't think it would have been seen as a big deal or a negative in this case. I think it would have done it a disservice to trim out 20 minutes just to get it down to that two hour time slot. Because I didn't see a lot of things in this movie that I would have trimmed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about, there were a couple of scenes that I might've made a little shorter, but not to the tune of 20 minutes. So you love all these MCU movies, these new ones. Is the idea of the origin story like a thing now? It seems like it is. Well, it definitely is with with uh, I mean, Superman, the movie being the first of its kind, you want to start literally at the beginning. But with so many of these other characters, especially the Marvel characters, so many of them just broad mainstream audiences didn't know who they were. So you had to do an origin story to explain it. But then you fall into the trap uh, where it comes down to dollars and cents and contracts. You get things like Spider-Man where, you know, if they don't make a movie every X number of years, the rights revert back to Marvel. So Sony keeps pumping out these Spider-Man movies. So you have a Spider-Man origin movie and then 10 years later, you get another Spider-Man origin movie and then 10 years later, you get another Spider-Man. And – I, I, the same with Superman, right? As they've made more iterations of Superman, they've they've been a little more selective about how they want to retell this origin story. And I think with a character like Superman now, he is so well known in the mainstream in mainstream pop culture. The the people don't need an origin story. Just just mm-hmm. tell us the story you want, and and maybe you know like they did with the Man of Steel. You can tell pieces of the origin in flashback as they're related to what's happening with the main story now, but. With a character this big, you can get away without it. Now, in 1978, you didn't have that context. There was a lot of people that maybe, oh, yeah, Superman, he's the guy who flies around. But I don't necessarily think people understood or, or were familiar with the origins of the character. And so I think they needed to put it in there. And and like you said, like it took 20, 30 minutes. Like it's almost like its own movie. You have the part at Krypton, then you have the part with him in Kansas as a young, as a baby and a youngster. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's not until like halfway through the movie where Christopher Reeves shows up as Superman. Uh, but you need that first half for the second half to work. If you don't understand where he came from and why he's doing what he's doing and how he became the person he is, then the way he acts is just going to seem ridiculous. Like, why is this guy so naive? Is this guy really as, you know, the Boy Scout that that he's pretending to be? Well, because you've seen that first hour of his origin story. Yeah, he's genuine. So I like the origin story in this. I feel it's really important. But I also thought the movie really kicks in when Christopher Reeve finally appears. Yes. And we get that whole Superman in New York story going on. Like, you agree, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I have a question for you. So it, it, at the beginning of the film, uh, Jor-El has the theory that the, the planet's going to explode and the elders don't believe him. So he puts his baby son in that spacecraft and sends him to Earth. Yeah. The journey to Earth is so long, the kid ages like three years. So I have a couple questions. Where did he get food and how did he go to the bathroom in that thing? Yeah, that that, that is so the, the origin of Superman has been modified over time as the story has required in some cases in most of the cases of the comic book they talk about the baby that's put in the ship is in some form of stasis and that um it's it takes 
years. Um, and he's he's not in there for just the two or three years that they sort of make it out to seem he's in there, that it's like he's in there much longer. But yeah, to your point, they show the child being wide awake. So yeah, mm. how, does it, how does it eat? How does it go to the bathroom? Who cleans up the poop? Like, um, I think we're just supposed to believe that a society that's advanced enough to put their kid into a rocket ship and send them away has some sort of way to, to deal with that. And especially in 1978, people aren't worried about those little details. So the whole idea that Jarrell sends his only son to Earth to help show people the way and mm-hmm. like help them, it just smacks of religious overtones. Oh, well, the whole the whole Superman story of, you know, it, it parallels the story of Moses, where it's like they put the child in the basket, they put him in the river, he floats away and then he he gets discovered and he's raised under, you know, he's raised by people who, who can give him a different perspective. Like that's, or that's even, right out of the box. Or even Jesus, like set, you and, your, and your only course, son down to earth to yeah, like save uh, people and stuff like that. But I don't recall a lot of outrage or people offended at this movie back when it came out. And I mean, let's face it. A lot of deeply religious people freak the hell out at this kind of stuff, but I don't know. I don't. I don't remember seeing any of that. Like he, cause no. he's he's not portrayed as god as a god. Like he doesn't tell people what they should or shouldn't believe in. So, well, and I think I think that's why you don't have that outrage that you yeah. might expect. Um, partly because the character at the time of the release of this movie had been in, had been a known character for forty years. If this is the first time anybody had ever seen this, there would be a lot more. I think there would be a lot more criticism about it. But the, to your point, the fact that he doesn't show up and say, do it, you know, do this because I'm telling you to do this. It's more of Superman is always the beacon of hope. He's the pinnacle of what people should aspire to be. Um, and he leads by example. He tries to be the absolute, be- you know, in this particular version, he's American. He tries to be what he believes is the best an American can be. You know, you want to. And, and when he plays Clark Kent. You see those qualities where, you know, he's polite, he he treats everybody equally, he's, you know, he he, he does all the things that you would expect, um, you know, a very good and kind hearted person to to do. And I think a lot of religious groups would would see a lot of, of positivity in that. So why would you rally against this this character that is actually, you know, exuding the, the qualities that you would think that your religion is trying to teach anyway? I would think it would be the opposite. They'd be like, hey. People in my congregation go see Superman. This is a great, a great movie about a a, a, a powerful character who who brings hope to everybody. So, mm-hmm. so he lands on Earth, and like you mentioned, it's in Kansas, and he's adopted by this rural, older, childless couple. They raise him, and then when he becomes a teenager, he really looks the actor that plays him really looks like Lance Guest from the Last Starfighter. Yeah. And I remember you mentioned that when we did our review of yeah, the I Last it was the Starfighter. Same guy. It's yeah. not it's it's his name was Jeff East. He yeah. was he was actually Huck Finn in the 73 movie Tom Sawyer with sure. Johnny Whitaker and Jodie Foster. That's where he was known for this, but uh, uh so the one scene I noticed with the the Jeff East character when he's running alongside the train and there's yeah. a little girl on the train and she sees him and she says something to her parents. The audio is stripped out of the version of the film that I was watching this week. But, you know, having seen this movie several times over the years, I remember this scene and I remember the little girl says to her mom, look, there's something like, you know, there's a man outside, you know, and her mom's like, oh, Lois, you've got such an imagination. Yeah. Implying yeah. that it's Lois Lane, like a little girl, right? But they took exactly. that part out. Like, did the, the version you watched this week, do you remember? I mean, it's a, it's minor detail, but did you notice that? 
Yeah, so there, there I, I've learned that there are multiple versions of this movie out there, and the one that is available on streaming right now, I think I watch the same one you watch, but I have them on DVD, and you're absolutely right. In the original DVD version, that line is in there. There's also a few other scenes that were removed and or added. Uh, I know there was like a director's cut that was released, and I believe what we're seeing now is the director's cut, whereas the um, original had a few different things. One of the other scenes that was cut out of this one that I remember from the original was when the the ship with Superman as the baby is leaving Krypton and flying through the universe. Mm-hmm. You see it go past the Phantom Zone, the the flat pane of glass that it looks yes. like where the villains have been imprisoned. Right. Sort of reminding the audience, although Krypton just blew up, these three bad guys are still out there because as you said, they knew that was going to be an integral part of the yeah. next movie. And that was removed from the director's cut as well. There's a couple other yeah. scenes that, that were at that where like, there was definitely a couple of scenes where I, there was new dialogue that I didn't remember seeing before. And there were a couple other details where as scenes passed, I sort of thought to myself, I remember there being a little more here. So, you know, it is what it is. I think on the whole, though, it's still, you know, the the, the things that were changed were relatively minor. So I'm not going to sweat those small details. So the, the, after his his adopted father dies, you know, the teenage Clark Kent knows he's got to leave. Right. He So he leaves and he goes way up north. I'm assuming at that point, just to try and find a secluded place that he can throw away that green crystal. Well, and, and then, I, I I joke with my wife. I said, well, I guess he walks from Kansas to Alaska because since Superman's supposed to be American, he's not going to build that fortress of solitude in Canada. That's so true. That's, that's a true. lot of walking. And um, and then the other thing I thought was interesting when he's walking across those polar ice caps, I was reminded of one of your movie pet peeves, Derek, where people mm-hmm. don't wear hats because he well, sure could have used one there. Like, he's impervious to the cold. That's, I guess. that's not. But what I thought when I was watching those parts was it reminded me of Elf. I'm like, good luck finding your dad. (laughs) Thanks, Mr. Narwhal, because the special effects were so cheesy. That's exactly what it reminded me of. And I said that out loud and my wife just busted gut laughing. Something just came to mind. There's a scene when Lois, you know, it kicks in and Christopher Reeve is now the adult. Lois first meets him and she's she says, how are you doing? And he says, swell. Yeah. And she just stops and pauses and she says something to him like, she's like, there's very few people left in the world that are comfortable using that word. Mm-hmm. I say swell all the time. I don't know if it's just me. Even at work, people are like, are, are hey, you Chris. secret? Are you secretly Superman, Chris? Maybe I am. You never know. Um, then the scene with the mugger in the alley, I thought was yeah. interesting, too, because he catches the bullet and he pretends to faint to keep up the illusion, obviously, that he's, you know, a wimp. Um and, and by the way, this whole idea of Clark Kent being bumbling and shy, that was all Christopher Reeve. He brought that to that role. Like he, he wanted to be a, a real separation between the characters, which is smart because if you don't have that, the only thing that you have the difference is a pair of glasses, you know? Yeah. Right. But in the alley, when he catches the bullet and then he, he throws the bullet away, he gives this little smirk. Yeah. And that, to me, is the other real contribution that Christopher Reeve made to this character, because he puts these little moments of humor in there. It's not even really humor. It's more like lightheartedness or something. He was the perfect actor for this part, I think. Yeah, he, he brings a, he brings a humanity to a character that's supposed to be an alien who's come to this world. So you be, you believe it. You I absolutely believe that he 
was Superman and Clark Kent in this movie. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, nah, the casting was sort of off on this. I, I cannot imagine anyone else doing a better job. And I don't think any of the performers that have played Superman on TV or the big screen since then have done anywhere near as good a job. It's it's the fact that he was able to raise that bar so high. Anyone who's come after him, you know, good luck. Like, he, he, he nailed it on the first try. And anyone who's cast as Superman for the rest of, you know, for the rest of my life, Good luck. This is this is the 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 high bar that you are going to be measured against. Well, let me give you a little rundown of some of the actors that were considered for this part or offered the part before he got mm-hmm. it. Okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger was offered the part. Neil Diamond, Neil Friggin Diamond, apparently lobbied really hard. I heard he wanted yeah. to be Superman. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, James Caan, James Brolin, Christopher Walken was considered, believe it or not. Nick Nolte, John Voight, Perry King, and Lyle Wagoner. Like, they were all considered for this part. Derek, do you know know why Lyle Wagoner couldn't do the part? No, I don't even know who Lyle Wagoner is. Oh, he, he was busy starring in. He was busy doing another superhero show. Man, I oh, okay. love Wonder Woman. Oh, man. Uh, I had also heard that they they either were talking to or were considering Clint Eastwood and um, Steve McQueen. It's apparently, Steve McQueen turned it down because he knew he was nowhere near in the shape he would need to be to play right. this part and had no desire to get in shape to play this part. And he's just mm-hmm. like, no, got to pass on that one. Um, but, yeah, I was like. You know, some of those people you think, oh, maybe uh, Burt Reynolds apparently uh, was considered and either turned it down or whatever. But they they kept coming back to from what I was reading. They kept saying, I think we need someone who's more of an unknown because we don't want the baggage that comes with a known commodity. D- despite the fact that that might get bums and seats, people need to believe that this is someone who can fly. And to see Burt Reynolds in the tights flying around, I think people would have just laughed at it. I don't think they would have taken it seriously, despite if the role had been played seriously. So, no, I, th- I again, I think the casting was just amazing. There's one scene, too, where he has to change into the Superman outfit. And back in the comics, he always changed in a phone booth. And yeah. he's, he's running down the street, and the phone booth is one of those, like, half phone booth things, like, without any doors. And he just looks at it up and down and mm-hmm. runs on, and they totally play that part for humor. And the funny thing is today, watching it with today's, there's no such thing as phone booths at all anymore. Like, yeah, what is what is what does Superman do in the new movies, Derek? Does he like where does he go to change into his Superman outfit? There's no they they just they don't bother even showing it or talking about it. So, yeah, Uh, you so you mentioned about how a man can fly. You know, does he look like he's on wires? Yeah, maybe. You know, does he look like he's against a green screen? Kind of blue screen it was a blue screen right. and that's why they had to change the tint of the costume because it was uh, uh it was it was, it was, it was clashing lost. Oh, yeah it, it was supposed to be more of like a baby blue but they had to make it more of a turquoise to to contrast so that it didn't get messed up yeah. um i i'm just mindful of the time because we've been we're probably wrapping up in a minute i did mention earlier we were talking about the long run time and i was saying oh there's some things i might have trimmed out 
the the scene where Superman and Lois go flying to me is five minutes longer than it needs to be. I think that yeah. The, the, so that's one of the additions they put in with the director's cut is Lois Lane has like a monologue voiceover where mm-hmm. she's like, "Oh, can you read my mind?" And apparently that's a song. It was supposed to be a song lyric, and it was supposed oh. to be she was supposed to sing it. And when they did it, they're like, "No, nah, it's not working. Just do it as like a spoken word." That was not in the theatrical release. That's been added. I think that's a, I think that was a bad call. I think it takes away from the movie. Uh, I think that whole flying scene is ridiculous. The fact that he's not literally carrying her, he's just sort of holding her arm and like, like what she's supposed to have the, the flying power just cause they're touching like that to me. That was one of the things that has always bothered me about that part of the movie. It just seemed so dumb. I, like I can believe a man can fly. I can't believe that woman can fly in that circumstance. It always just takes me right out of the moment. And when it was on this last time, so my wife said, oh, they're doing that stupid flying scene. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, good call. She comes back. She's like, they're still flying. I'm like, yeah, my <laughs> turn. I went to the bathroom and came back. They were still flying. I was like, oh, my God, this this you got to trim this five minutes out of the movie. It is dumb and it doesn't really add anything. You can have them do this fly around for 30 or 40 seconds and you'll accomplish the exact same thing. It is stupid. I That is one. That's my biggest pet peeve of this movie. Just cut it right out. Well, you know, you got to admit, though, that's a pretty impressive first date. I, I mean, I don't care if you show up to your first date with a girl and you proceed to fly her around Manhattan on a starry night and you skirt above the clouds before you take her back. You're totally. Well, and even if he doesn't, he's already used his x-ray vision. He knows what's under that dress. <laughs> <laughs> How inappropriate was that? Speaking of inappropriate, there's a scene when he flies down and he gets this little girl's cat out of the tree and he yeah. hands her the cat and then she goes into the house and you hear her say, Mommy, my cat was in a tree and a man flew down and got him for me. And the girl's mom says, I told you never to lie. And you hear the little girl getting slapped. Yeah. I was like, Which, Jesus Christ, what the hell was that all about? Well, not only that, but the mom clearly slapped her in the face because yeah. it was the sound of it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to pull your pants down and spank you. It That slap happened so quickly. That was definitely a smack across the face. No and that, again, wife and I look at each other when she's like, are we supposed to intone that that woman just smacked the daughter in the face? I'm like, yeah, I think so. I'm I like, so it was too. a different time. So, OK, so I want to talk a little bit about the rocket hijacking because um, Lex, uh, Lex Luthor sets up the, the trap. You know, in the road, he crashes the car and he's got Miss Tossmacher laying on the road wearing that revealing dress. Mm-hmm. The head military guy, do you recognize who it was? Yeah, J.R. Ewing, yeah, Larry Hagman. Yeah. And um, so one of the other guys says to him, he's like, Captain, what should we do to help her? And he goes, vigorous chest massage. And then mouth right. to mouth. I'm like, again, just like all this inappropriate stuff from the 70s. Oh, my God. Um, did you recognize one of the military guys back at the headquarters that was watching on the screen? Yeah, it was Cliff Clavin. Yes, John Ratzenberger. I, I, I never noticed him before. That no. might have been added in the director's cut as well. I don't because I, I don't remember seeing him in previous versions. But And then the scene when Lex Luthor gets a hold of some kryptonite somehow and almost mm-hmm. drowns Superman in his pool because it's not really so much a pool, I guess. It's like a flooded underground of the old subway station or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Miss Tessmacher then decides to jump in the pool and save Superman, which yeah. allows her white dress to get wet and show off her acting talents, you know? Yeah, both then, of them. Yeah. Um, so then he's Superman's got to go and try and stop two missiles. Like one's going to the San Andreas Fault. One's going to New Jersey. But he promised to go to the one in New Jersey because Miss Tessmacher wanted that one stopped. Her mother lived there or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
I'd be like, it'd be so hard because I mean, Superman's like, he wants to save people, but it's like, if your face was saving California or New Jersey, I'd be like, it's New Jersey. Just let it go. You know? <laughs> so uh, this is, this is where my 2023 continuity brain came into work. Okay. So I'm watching it going. So if Metropolis is supposed to be a substitute for New York city mm-hmm. and they talk about things, clearly like, it was cause you saw yeah. the, the statue of Liberty and you, statue you of Liberty yeah. and they talk about street designations that yeah. are clearly New York. So let's assume for a minute, Metropolis is New York city and the, the fortress where Lex Luthor is, is, underground in new york city because she even says well i wanted a pent park avenue blah 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 and he she and, you know and she goes yeah but i didn't want to be 200 feet underground so they are clearly in new york and the missile was going to destroy new jersey now from where those missiles looked like they were they were probably somewhere in the rockies let's say colorado for argument's sake mm-hmm. so the missile needed to go from colorado to new jersey well if superman was coming from new york wouldn't he be flying towards the missile to stop it and not from behind the missile True. to have to catch up to it. True. Again, a very small minor nitpick mm-hmm. that I never noticed before, but it bugged me a little bit. And I, I sort of turned to my wife and said that she's like, "We just shut up and watch the movie. It's a movie about a guy <laughs> flying. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. So anyway, small yeah. minor detail. Yeah, but we're wrapping things up with, with the climax of the film and then we'll get to some trivia. But I want to mention Hoover Dam. Have you ever been to Hoover Dam? You've been to Vegas uh, a ton. I've flown over the Hoover Dam okay. many times. You can see it from the airplane. And yeah. believe me, when I saw it in this movie, I said out loud, I'm like, they wish there was that much water behind the Hoover Dam now. <laughs> yeah, so I've done the same thing. I've never actually been out there, but I've flown over it too, went on my way to Vegas. It is one of the single most amazing things I've ever seen in my entire life. Even just flying over. How the hell did they ever build that thing? It's oh, just mind-boggling. It's, like, it's, uh, it's a massive feat of engineering. You love your documentaries. you got to find one on how they built the Hoover, Hoover Dam. Let me know. Okay. If you, okay. Like, like, anyway, just amazing. And in and, and, and all the scenes, you can tell they're using miniatures and yeah. stuff, but it's all cool. So in, in the final scene, he's too late to save Lois, so he screams. And I mean like a full open mouth, head back scream. And with today's high definition, I could see... Superman has fillings in his teeth. Yeah, I saw that too. And I was like, you know, these kryptonite, you know, Krypton, they claim to be more advanced to us, but it would appear that they don't have any fluoride on Krypton. Well, I, I, maybe we, maybe he had those cavities before his powers fully developed and, and yeah, they had to maybe. fix things. Yeah. So he flies around the world backwards, you know, to make it change the way it's rotating and time goes back. And he goes back to Lois and she's alive again. The look on his face, though, when he sees her alive, Christopher Reeve was not dialing in his role no. here. He he was fantastic. He poured everything he had into this part. And it, it yep. kind of all culminated for me in that scene. Just the look on his face, I was like, dude, man, this guy is invested in this part. Like it was it was good. It was I really Yeah, he did, it. he did he didn't just look the part. He no. he, he oh, was a good he was actor. Great. God, he was great. Yeah, he was really so, so good in this. Overall, I thought the movie was great. I'm glad we went back and watched it. Thank you for nominating it. Will you give it a rating out of 10? Give it a 9 out of 10. Good for you. I would give it a 9 out of 10 as well. All right. Yep. What do you say we now have some? Fun with Caveman. Okay, Derek. So I, I mentioned how Christopher Reeve is the clear star of this movie, but he did not receive top billing. So, tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to quiz you on some other films where the lead actor did not get top billing. Okay. Oh, okay. That's clever. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to give you the yeah. title of the film, and I'm going to give yeah. you the lead actor. But you okay. have to name the actor that was billed 
ahead of them in the credits. Oh, okay. And on the movie. Yeah, poster. yeah, okay, go. Yeah, it yeah, might yeah. seem difficult, but it's actually pretty simple. No, no, I so. think I, I mean I'm bad at remembering actors' names, as yeah. Tilda Swinton will tell you off the top of this show, right. but uh yeah. All but right, anyway, let's okay. Do it. So so here we go. Okay, so after the success of Superman, they released Superman 2. Christopher Reeve at this point was a legitimate Hollywood star, right? But once again, he was passed over for top billing in Superman 2 by what actor? Uh, well, it's it's one of two guys. It's either Terrence Stamp, who's the main villain, or Gene Hackman again. I, I'm going to go with Gene Hackman. Yes, Gene Hackman once again was Bill DeBoom. Okay, so another superhero movie came out in 1989. Mm-hmm. Batman. Michael yep. Keaton played the title role, but he did not receive top billing. Who did? Jack Nicholson. And one of Batman's sequels was 1997's Batman and Robin. George Clooney took over the title role. Just like Michael Keaton, though, he didn't get top billing. Who oh. did? Probably Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, as Mr. Freeze. Very good. Yeah. Okay, 1980s Apocalypse Now. Ooh. It was a story of an army officer played by Mark yeah. Sheen, but yeah. he did not get top billing. He lost out top billing to this actor that well, appeared in just 15 minutes of the film's two and a half hour runtime. Yeah, it's got to be Brando. All right, I'm going to stick with war movies for you here. Okay. 1986's Platoon. Yeah, I knew you were going here. Charlie Sheen was in the lead role, but he was billed third. Can you name one of the two actors that outbilled him? Bonus, Tom Bar- if you can Tom name Berenger. them both. Tom Berenger. And that's one. If Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Yes, was the other one. Very good. Okay, so Willow from 1988. Oh, yeah. Warwick Davis. He was on a mythical quest in that movie, but he didn't get top billing. Who no. outbilled him? Got to be Val Kilmer. You're killing this category, man. You're killing yeah. it. Okay. In 1996, Scream basically single-handedly re- yes. revived the horror genre. Yes, yes, yes. Nev Campbell was in the lead role, but she did yep. not get top filling for the film. No. Who did? I'm pretty sure it was Drew Barrymore. Yes. Even though Who she was died, only in it for like 10 she, minutes. Yeah, yeah, she died in the first scene, right? Okay. Uh, speaking of horror films, one of the best of all time. I know you haven't seen it, but it's 1978's Halloween. Featuring the screen screen queen, Jamie Lee Curtis. But okay. she didn't get top billing in the film. Do you know who did? I can't name anybody else who was even in that movie. Oh, it was Donald Pleasance. Donald I don't Pleasance. even know who that is. Oh, he was from The Great Escape, remember? Guy was lost his vision. Okay. Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Melanie Griffith played the working girl in oh, the yes. 1988 film of the same name. Oh, but she this was a good question. Not yeah. by one. But by two co-stars, can you name oh, okay. either one? Bonus I was both. worried it was going to, I had to pick between the two of them. Nope. So it would definitely have been Harrison Ford. That's and, one. And Sigourney Weaver. Good. Speaking of Sigourney Weaver, when you hear the word alien, who do you think of? Oh. Sigourney yeah. Weaver, right? Of course, yeah. But when, when that movie came out in 1979, she did not get top billing. Do you know who did? Uh, was it Scarrett? Yes, it was Tom Scarrett. Very yeah. Good. Okay, Goodfellas is the story of Henry Hill, played by yes. Ray Liotta. Yep. But he was billed second behind this actor. 
had to be De Niro. God, you're doing good. All right. Uh, but and honestly, though, I think in, with Goodfellas, I can mm. remember the cover of the movie, like the poster. And it had, I think it was alphabetical, De Niro, Leota, and Pesci. In that, I think it was in that order. Now, mm. it might have just been a coincidence that that was alphabetical, but yeah. I think that's part of it. Anyway. Okay. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Stacey Hamilton was the lead character, oh. played by Jennifer Jason Lee, but she yeah. did not receive top billing for the film. No. Do you know who did? Uh, I don't, but I'm going to guess, was it Judge Reinhold? Was Sean it TV Penn. Gates? Sean, Sean Penn. Penn. Oh, that makes so much yeah. more sense. And yeah. National Lampoon's Animal House. It's got this big cast, but the main character was Tim Matheson's Otter. Yeah. And Tom yeah. Hulse's Pinto, too. Yeah. But they both lost out on top billing to this actor. Gotta be Belushi. You did great. You only missed two. That was yeah. good. Well no, that done. was a good, that was good trivia. That was yeah. a good uh, when you when you started to talk about that. I thought, oh, I should do okay on this. No, you did but, really well. But in yeah. all fairness, Chris, this really leans back to my my blockbuster days where you had to constantly look at the posters of the movies and the cover boxes. So a lot of these, as you were talking about them, I could immediately picture the cover box and and remember, oh, mm-hmm. these these names were here and these names were there. So. Um, I think if you had asked me questions about some newer movies, it would have been harder just because right. I don't know what any of these new posters look like. But yeah, yeah you know, even the movie posters still a thing. I yeah, I thought that might be an interesting way to kind of attack the uh, the trivia this week. So next time when we come back, we're going to come back probably with a topic. I'm going to be away next week again. Summers are tough. I'm on vacation a lot. I'm I'm, I'm here and there. But uh, we'll come back in a couple of weeks. We'll do a topic. Does that sound fair? Sounds good to me. Yeah, we'll work out what it is and we'll figure that out. So until then. I'm Chris McBrien, that's Derek Myers, and we want to say thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 